these chronic cardiometabolic diseases that we see in our population, even potentially neurological diseases, immune disorders, I think the biggest driver is poor diet. By altering diet in people and using food as medicine, we can have a fundamental impact on the health of our nation and our world. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. In this episode, I have an interview with a leading scientist specializing in gut microbiota. These are the microbes that live in your intestine and help you digest your food. Interestingly, our DNA does not have all the enzymes we need to break down the food that we eat into vitamins and minerals that we need to survive. We actually live in this weird symbiotic relationship with our microbial ecosystem. Most of it is in our gut. Uh, most of it lives in our bowels and our intestines. We provide the microbes a nice, warm, damp home, and they provide us with nutrients from the food that we give them. When the ecosystem gets out of whack, we can get sick. Sometimes we take antibiotics to cure an infection, and that throws a huge wrench into this uh, internal ecosystem. I've read articles and seen folks saying that probiotics and yogurt help to rebuild this robust microbiome. Uh, I've also heard some folks saying that anything you eat gets killed in your stomach and has really no effect on your microbiome. I'd like to hear what the experts have to say. Listen along and hopefully you'll also find out. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Please share it with your friends and feel free to interact with me, send me a review of the podcast or join the Facebook group, The Rational View and chat with me. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Professor Jack Gilbert joined UCSD in 2019, where he's a professor in pediatrics and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, associate vice chancellor for marine science and director of both the Microbiome and Metagenomics Center and the Microbiome Core Facility. He uses molecular analysis to test fundamental hypotheses in microbial ecology. He co-founded the Earth Microbiome Project and American Gut Project, has authored over 400 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters on microbial ecology, co-authored the book Dirt is Good, and is the founding editor-in-chief of ASM Systems Journal. He founded Biome Sense Inc. to produce automated microbiome sensors. Dr. Gilbert, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you, Al. So I appreciate you joining us here today to to tell us about micro microbiomes. I've been looking at uh, nutrition and health, and one of the things that I think is is lacking in these discussions is the impact of microbiome on health. I, I kind of feel like the scientific community has only just scratched the surface on the role that the gut microbiome plays in in health and disease processes. Would would it be fair that it's kind of been an overlooked area of science until very recently? Well, very recently, probably in the last 20 years. I mean, people have always understood, um, realistically, microbes in the body must be playing some kind of role in health. I mean, uh, um, uh, back in the 19th century, um, Louis Pasteur said that you know, plants and animals probably couldn't survive without the microbes that lived with inside mm. them. Um, you know, and then we had uh, Eli Metchinkoff, talking about the importance of fermented foods because it introduced foreign bacteria into the body and promoted health. Um, and in the 1950s, people were using fecal microbiome transplants to uh, cure you know, disorders such as C. diff mm. infections. So there's, for years, for 150 years, people have understood there's some role. It's really only in the last 20 years that we've had the technology in place to start to investigate the complexity of that microbiome in a way that would reflect our ability to do anything with it, right? right. <laughs> it's all very well saying, look, it makes a difference. Very different to be able to say, 
I can come up with targeted clinical therapies and predictive uh, diagnostic biomarkers that I can use to actually treat specific diseases or diagnose particular conditions. And that's, that is a, a modern innovation. Is the, the ability to do genome sequencing a key tool in the arsenal for, for this work? Absolutely. I mean, when, when we talk about the microbiome, right, we're talking about a collection of hundreds, um, sometimes thousands of species of microorganisms living across the body, right? Mm -hmm. These are, each one of them has a, a genome size of maybe between two to eight million base pairs. Your genome is only 3.5 billion, so, so it's significantly larger, but you only have one of those in some 30 trillion cells of your body. Uh, there are some 40 trillion microbial cells in your body, and each one of them has uh, 6 million base pairs on average uh, in their genome. So it's an enormous quantity and variety of genetic information. Wow. And the only way that we can understand it is if we use DNA sequencing technologies to read it out and tell us who is there and what are they doing and try and use that information to understand, are these organisms predictive of uh, the disease that we observe in the patient? Hmm. Are these organisms doing something metabolically, stimulating the immune response, changing your hormone levels, influencing your brain activity? Are they doing something uh, that we can track down and use to identify a mechanism, right? We're like microbial engineers. Yeah, yeah. We want to figure out what they're doing. Yeah, I was fascinated to learn that most of our cells, most of the cells in our body don't share our DNA. Like, you know, we, we like to think we have an identity which is associated with our DNA, but, you know, we, we really are, are mostly microbiome. What, how, how does this work? Why doesn't our immune system attack these other cells? Well, um, it, it, we're swimming in a microbial world. So, you know, over the last, say, two billion years of eukaryotic evolution, evolution of things that you can see with your eyes, right? Um, that life has lived in a microbial planet. And microbes have been around for 4 billion years, so they outdate us by around 2 billion years. Our ape um, evolution is only around 5 to 10 million years old, and our bodies have evolved to manage that microbial exposure. You know, uh, from the moment your amniotic sac ruptures, you're continuously exposed to microorganisms, and you are a nice, big, sack of lovely nutrients <laughs> in a nice warm cuddly environment right and they want to take advantage of that some of them some microbes have actually adapted and evolved to mammalian physiology um to just live alongside us mm. they but they're really well adapted to our bodies and so the immune system i like to think of the immune system like a gardener you know we okay. traditionally okay. we think of it like a, a soldier or a or an army yeah, yeah. Right? Um, it's there to kill off the bad bugs, but it's really not. It, that's it. That's probably one very, very tiny role it has. It's more there to manage that garden, oh, okay. to make sure that the garden produces the right kinds of things to keep our body healthy. So it's very selective. Those microbial, yes, yeah, super selective. And it, it again, it's managing it. It's promoting the growth of the good guys, and you know, and making the environment less advantageous for the bad guys. And and that's. That's a far more nuanced understanding of how the immune system functions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have a do you're a donut, right? You, you, you've got the whole of your donut goes in your mouth, your anus. So that's all on the outside. Everything on your skin is on the outside. Your durogenital tract is on the outside. You know, we have lots of invaginations into this physique. And those are colonizable because they're in contact with the outside mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. You, know, you alone are emitting some 30 million bacterial cells into your immediate vicinity every hour. Wow. So you are a little microbial generator, right? Let alone, you know, uh, the microbes that live inside you and uh, you're exposed to. But if we were sitting in the same room, we'd both be exposed to each other's microbes. Mm. And, and therefore, the immune system has to cope with that. It has to manage that exposure. I, I can see why people become very... Uh 
germophobic and with that picture in mind, it, it kind of makes you cringe a little bit. Um, but I understand also that germophobic behavior isn't good for us. I mean, there's obviously mutually beneficial symbiosis going on here between our bodies and, and the microbes that, that we are cultivating. Um, what, can you give us some examples of what key roles microbes play in our bodies? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, we, we can have an endless discussion about this, and every single day we seem to find something new. I mean, some of the obvious most key roles is they play a role in helping to break down the food that we can't break down, right? There's mm -hmm. substrates that we eat, especially plant materials, that our bodies just are not designed to break down. And so those bacteria that live down deep inside your large intestine, inside your colon, they can break those uh, those plant materials down, those complex carbohydrates, fiber, mm. for example. They break down that fiber, they ferment it, much the same way as you, you know, you'd see bacteria fermenting milk to make yogurt or cheese, you know, bacteria fermenting, or you know, bacteria and yeasts fermenting uh, um, uh, stuff to make wine, you know, grapes. Oh, okay. these, these relationships, they break down these complex carbohydrates in our intestine and they produce compounds as a byproduct, right? They're eating it and then they poop out chemicals that our bodies become dependent on. Hmm. The cells that line your intestine, that make your intestine function, uh, they're called colonocytes. They line the colon, okay. right? These cellular cells of the colon, they actually require the, these chemical poops that the bacteria produce when they degrade your fiber. And if they don't get it, they become, well, the membrane that lines your colon can become weak. It can become uh, permeable, way too permeable. And stuff that lives inside your intestine probably shouldn't really get inside your body. Ooh. Um, you know, that that's the whole point of having this membrane on the outside. It's mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. supposed to stop those things happening. Yeah, I've and I've recently read a bit uh, about links between the microbiome and like autoimmune disorders such as irritable bowel disease, for example. Um and I think you've been involved with a little bit of this or you're you're, you're certainly aware of it. Can you tell us a little bit about of those links that perhaps you're discussing now? Well, yeah, I mean there's two can Two conditions there, really. There's inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, right, which is a pretty well-recognized autoimmune disorder that, you know, we believe the microbiome plays a role. People with IBD tend to have bacteria that uh, tend to promote inflammation mm -hmm. in the bowel, and it's probably there's a bidirectional relationship there. We're not sure which comes first, if it's the bacteria or the disease, could be that the disease promotes bacteria which promote the disease and some kind of horrible negative feedback mm. loop, right and then you have things like irritable bowel syndrome which is much more complex etiology it's, it's a broader range of disease right. more okay. like a spectrum right tends to affect people in middle age but you know can hit people across the across the gradient and and that is a much more uh, complicated relationship we've found maybe seven or eight different variations of ibs and each one tends to have its own microbial signature that we find in the poop, right? So uh, we, we don't really fundamentally understand necessarily, again, in that situation, which comes first. But we do know that those bacteria we find associated with those different IBS, they all tend to be involved in promoting inflammation, promoting irritation of the membranes, and also causing even more distal dysfunction. So the metabolites they produce could break down your circadian function in, in, in your body, in your, in your, um, in the organs of your body and can promote uh, obesity. Hmm. Uh, they can also influence things like, uh, how much insulin and incretin you secrete. So it could change your blood sugar and lead to diabetes. So there's, there's very, very diverse and complicated relationships we don't understand. But what we do know is that you can treat it to a certain extent. I mean, there are, there are quite a few. Uh, small but uh, powerful clinical trials that have demonstrated for both IBD and IBS that uh, replacing that microbiome inside the gut with what we refer to as a fecal microbiota transplant, like I mentioned earlier in the 1950s, you take the poop from a healthy person and put it into somebody with IBS or IBD. And it, there is some evidence that it can play a role in helping to alleviate symptoms. Mm -hmm. But you do get, interestingly, responders and non-responders. Some people, you give them an FMT and their IBS symptoms go away and other people, it doesn't appear to help. Um, so we're, not, we're still trying to figure out the, the, the impact right. and the, uh, I guess, the efficacy of this treatment sure, sure. and see what role it could play. 
yeah, the the um, the interventions are, are very gross, I guess, at this level. You're just kind of this works. Let's throw it in here and see if it. <laughs> you're not, you know, I don't. Are are you actually picking out individual strains or ecosystems of bacteria and implementing them, or are you just taking this is a healthy person? We'll put it into an into an unhealthy person and see if it works. Like, what level are we at with these interactions? I mean. Yeah, for FMT, it really is the latter, right? We just kind of, you know, it's almost like this ecosystem is damaged. Let's take this ecosystem we don't understand and just throw it at that ecosystem and hope it re you know, replaces the damaged yeah. one. There are um, a couple of new uh, microbiome-associated um, drugs that have been approved by the FDA recently, um, and these are more, far more targeted, um, they they contain their pills often or uh, either oral or suppository that contain particular um, strains of bacteria which are, appear to play a role okay. in in um, in doing the same thing as a total FMT. So you know, so having just the poo, we've just taken some of the bugs out of the poo, cultivated them, and those bugs um, uh, appear to play a role in helping to treat disease. They're only really approved for Clostridioides difficile infections, so C. diff infection, okay. um, uh, you know, chronic pathogenic disease of the gut. Mm. Um, and so, uh, but they, they appear to be effective. So we're working on getting from this very crude, uh, we don't really understand what's happening, but if we swap out your poop for somebody's healthiest poop, you're going to get better to a far more targeted approach where we have particular probiotics, if you will, right? We, when we introduce them, at an um, appropriate amount in a live form, they appear to have a health benefit, uh, the definition of a probiotic. And so we are working towards these more discrete, targeted therapeutics. Mm. I know um, antibiotics play havoc with our, our microbiome. If, you're, if you take an antibiotic for an infection, you know, I imagine it cleans out the gut microbiome and you're kind of starting anew with, a, with, a, with an empty gut. And I've read that probiotics, you know, eating yogurt or taking orally, these probiotics are supposed to help reestablish your gut microbiome after antibiotics. But I've also read people saying that eating probiotics doesn't do much at all to your gut because anything that goes in the stomach dies. How do you how do you get around this? What what's the evidence say? Right. So number one, antibiotics do have an impact upon the microbiome, right? That, that's what they're designed to do. They kill off certain species of bacteria, certain types of bacteria. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a given. But invariably, um, you can't kill it all off. And as soon as you stop taking the antibiotics, as long as you're eating healthily and you, you, know, you have a reasonably healthy lifestyle, your beneficial microbes that are still present inside the crypts and the ducts of your intestine, inside your skin, inside your oral cavity, they come bouncing back quite happily, right? Uh, you give them the right kinds of substrates, yeah, sure. you know, healthy, colorful, fiber-rich diet, and they'll come bouncing back quite happily. Uh, the probiotics in food, they, they, they're not designed to live in the intestine. No, none of them are. They, they, won't, they won't survive. It'd be like throwing a house plant into the Amazon and just assuming it was going to take over. There's just no way. There's one study uh, from Israel where they, they did... Um, oral endoscopy and uh, colonoscopy. So took, took uh, samples from both ends of people and they put them on antibiotics and they gave them probiotics, you know, in a subset of that population. Mm -hmm. And a small subset of the people that took probiotics in the duodenum, which is this region of the gut just after the stomach, uh, those probiotics actually started to take up residence there, which they definitely shouldn't be doing, right? They couldn't survive in the rest of the intestine, but they shouldn't be taking up residence there. We don't think that that's a good thing, mm -hmm. right? Food-based bacteria shouldn't be taking up residence in the gut. So this suggests that in some people, if they were to take a probiotic after as a treatment for trying to recapitulate the gut microbiome, it could have unintended consequences. Mm. We don't know if, know if they're bad, right? Okay. But maybe you know, we want our, our beneficial microbes to come back. This is what I always say. If you if you if you need to take an antibiotic, just try and eat healthy when you're taking the antibiotic, and for at least three or four weeks afterwards, right? To allow your microbial community to come back healthy and strong. Okay. It's it's never wiped out. You can never get a clean slate, right? It's uh, they're in they're, they're impossible to e eradicate entirely. 
the resilience. Okay. Okay. That's very, that's very helpful because I think there's a lot of mixed messages out there and people are selling these probiotics, uh, as, and I've, I, you know, I've seen it, you know, you take antibiotics, take your probiotics to recolonize your gut. No, 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 no. Okay. This is very useful. No evidence to support that. Yeah, there's no evidence to support that that's a good idea and no evidence to suggest that it has any real benefit. I'll tell you what probiotics, what I think they do do, right? There's, for years, when I say years, I mean, you know, thousands of years of our human culture, we've consumed fermented foods, Mm -hmm. right? And our immune systems of our ancestors were almost selected for based upon our, you know, healthy response to those foods because that was the way we preserve food, right? So ancestrally, our immune systems have got used to seeing these complex, biologically alive microorganisms in the food that we consume. So when we take, when we stop consuming those things, we hypothesize that that can lead to immune irregularity. Mm. We think, I, I emphasize, we, we don't have you know, the data for this. We can't go back in time and find out what's going on, but it, it does appear but this is what happens okay. when we add those fermented food, those living bacteria back into our body, we see um, healthy immune responses. What do I mean by that? You know, like the immune system tends to uh, have reduced systemic negative inflammation when you consume probi- uh, well, probiotic, but importantly, you know, fermented foods that have living organisms in them. Hmm. So, you know, eating that kimchi, eating that sauerkraut, consuming the, the uh, kefir, consuming yogurts, all these things we believe can be beneficial because our immune system is expecting to see them. Ah. I, I, you, know, you know, we talked about the immune system being like a gardener. Mm-hmm. Another brilliant thing it is, it's a surveillance network. So your immune system underneath your skin is sensing all of these microbes that it sees on the outside of your skin because little bits of those microbes break off and we think get through the barrier and our immune system sees them okay. and keeps a record of what it sees. And we, it, it will do the same for those foods that are passing through your mouth, down your esophagus, into your stomach, into your duodenum. It will see the bacteria and the, uh, the uh, fungi and the viruses that are associated with that fermented food. You'll see the food itself and it keeps a record of it inside your body. Mm-hmm. And it seems the bacteria that predominantly are associated with fermented food um, are, are sensed by that immune system and they produce a positive immune phenotype. Uh, your, your immune system looks healthier. Um, hmm. Seems like it might be a good idea. That's that's very interesting. In fact, you know, I've, I've read that, as you mentioned, so that the microbiome is linked to metabolism rate and, and potentially to obesity. Um, and so is it possible that, you know, we we seem to be seeing an epidemic of obesity in, in North American culture. Um, and, you know, people aren't exactly sure what it is. Is it access to, to processed food? Is it access to sugars? Is it less uh, access to alive foods like these, these fermented foods? Does that play a role uh, in, in obesity? Uh, you know, it's complicated, but I'd say it's all of the above, right? Um, we know if I take a, a mouse, right, and I take away all of its bacteria, we can create a germ-free mouse. We do this in a very, very complicated, it's quite very difficult, but you can create an, a mouse which has no bacteria living inside it. No matter what I feed that bacteria, as long as, oh, no matter what I feed the mouse, as long as I give it the same number of calories, if I give it a healthy, fiber-rich diet or an unhealthy, you know, high-sugar, high-saturated fat diet, as long as I give it the same amount of calories, it will put on the same amount of weight. Mm-hmm. But if the mouse has bacteria inside it and I give it a, a fiber-rich diet or a, um, a high-sugar, high-saturated diet, high-saturated fat diet, that high-sugar, high-saturated fat diet will promote obesity at the same calorific intake compared to a fiber diet, right? Suggesting that this, this, um, this high-sugar, high-saturated fat diet changes the microbiome in a way that promotes obesity. Hmm. What's even more interesting is if we feed the mouse a high sugar, high saturated fat diet, right, and then we take that microbiome out of that mouse and put it into a mouse that's never seen a high fat, high saturated, high sugar, high saturated fat diet, that mouse will now become obese as well. Wow. So 
the diet changes which bacteria can thrive and survive because remember what you eat is feeding your microbiome right mm -hmm. changes those bacteria and then those bacteria promote obesity we we we've demonstrated quite successfully for example that the bacteria that are changed by that high sugar high saturated fat diet right those bacteria produce chemicals which can alter how your body processes food energy causing it to put more of that energy into storage visceral fat you know wow. um uh you know versus the other way where it's where it's burning it up due to respiration um and, and it can do that for the same amount of calories as say a high fiber diet it's obviously way more complicated than that but i will argue that the biggest driver of um of a of uh, these chronic cardiometabolic diseases that we see in our population, even potentially neurological diseases, immune disorders, I think the biggest driver is poor diet. I really do think that by altering diet in people and using food as medicine, we can have a fundamental impact on the health of our mm -hmm. nation and our world. And in terms of the, the most important aspects of diet for a healthy gut microbiome, you've mentioned fiber uh, as a key uh, thing for the, for the bacteria in the, in the large colon. Um, what would you say, in, um, is incorporated in a healthy diet for, for the, the microbiome? Well, okay. So, you know, um, broad strokes is, well, let me, let me take a step back. Um, I think it varies per person. Okay. Unfortunately, I think there are individualized responses to food. Well, in fact, I know based upon all of the clinical data that we've seen and, and the trials that have been run and the trial, we're currently running a new trial right now called the Nutrition for Precision Health Program. It's a $170 million NIH program, National Institutes of Health program that's designed explicitly to see why people vary in their response to diet. But, you know, broad strokes, what's a healthy diet? Um, it's one that's definitely rich in fiber, but not just one type of fiber. It's not like you should just go out and buy fiber pills in the supermarket and just start chowing down on those. Okay. You need to eat a diverse array of fibers. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, our American Gut Project, which we published in 2018, demonstrated quite effectively that people who didn't tend to report disease had a very high diversity of beneficial chemicals in their bloodstream and also had a, a highly diverse and um, health-promoting microbiome, tended to consume more than 30 different species of plant in a week. Wow. So this is an association, but that's a good one, right? Eat 30 different species of plant in a week. I remember you know, cabbage and Brussels sprouts and broccoli are all one species, right? <laughs> so you gotta, you got to think about them uh -oh. better. They're all brassica. Right? <laughs> it's all, all the same species, just different parts of the okay. plants that have been selected for. But you got to think about it. So, you know, we talk about eating the rainbow. That's key. All of those colorful chemicals you find in the food uh, that make them so pretty, you know, like blueberries and raspberries and, you know, and strawberries and, and the uh, rhubarb, et cetera, those chemicals are actually food for the bacteria hmm. and they can promote the growth of beneficial organisms. So those high amount of fiber, but also a diverse array of fibers, great. Colorful foods, great, right? The one other addition, the one thing one of my colleagues, Justin Sonnenberg, demonstrated in a recent paper was that sometimes the gut microbiome in a person needs to be primed to receive these kind of nutrients, okay. right, to, to get ready for them. And that's where that fermented food comes in. We think things like kombucha, things like uh, sauerkraut, they can play a beneficial role in helping to stimulate the immune system. I remember the immune system of the gardener. So you, those things stimulate the immune system. That immune system promotes the growth of the beneficial organisms. And those beneficial organisms are then ready to receive the high fiber and highly colorful food diet, right? And then that all comes together to promote health from within. Wow. Okay, that's that's very helpful information. Um, and, you know, definitely the root of what I'm trying to understand in this series of podcasts is to, is to figure out, you know, what are the real evidence-based techniques that we can follow to, to help with health and nutrition. Another thing I, I'm interested in, and I've heard a little bit about it is, is, is gut brain links in that. And I think this has 
maybe some association with irritable bowel syndrome as well, but there are some aspects of how your gut responds to food that affect, you know, your brain and, or your hormones or, or, or these things. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what is known about how the microbiome affects our brains? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's self-evident that the microbiome appears to, or changes in the microbiome appear to be associated with everything from neurodevelopment, how the brain and how your behavior and, and health, neuro, mental health develop over your life, right? And neurodegeneration, things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's or cognitive decline, where the brain is starting to fail, um, and, and things like depression and anxiety all appear to be associated with changes in the microbiome. We also know that, you know, um, uh, most central nervous system disorders like depression, anxiety, um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, they're also associated with disturbances in gut transit. So things like diarrhea or constipation. So we'd say that that's a comorbidity, right? When you, when you tend to have problems like depression, you're going to have gut problems at the same time. We also know that antibiotics, things that kill off bacteria, right? They tend to be associated in certain people with promoting depression and anxiety, but antivirals and antifungals are, do not. There's no association. So killing off certain bacteria may promote depression and anxiety. We also know, wonderfully, that you can take the micro, well, maybe not wonderfully, <laughs> take the microbiome from some major depressive disorder, take that microbiome in a fecal microbiome transplant, put it into an animal, like a mouse or a rat, and that mouse or rat will show disturbed mental behavior. Wow. And we can even do it between mice and rats. So we did a recent study. We took rats that show depression-like phenotypes. These rats don't crave sugar, right? We call this anhedonia as opposed to hedonistic. Mm. These are not hedonistic, right? Okay. They, they're just like, I don't want to eat anything nice. And they tend to be very lethargic and they don't tend to want to socialize. You know, they, they show symptoms that uh, are similar to human symptoms of depression. If we take a microbiome from a rat that doesn't have those symptoms and put it into a rat that does, we can alleviate those symptoms, um, you know, via a fecal microbiome transplant. So this all suggests that the microbes inside your intestine are playing a role in what goes on up here. Wow. Well, how is that? We think that the bacteria produce chemicals which stimulate um, uh, nerves that invenerate and go inside the gut and they send signals up to the brain via our nervous system and they change brain chemistry up here. Also, those bacteria can promote inflammation, local inflammation in the intestine, but that can go systemic, right? And you can get inflammation spreading throughout the mm. body and that can cause inflammation on the brain, right? So you get neuroinflammation and neuroinflammation tends to be associated with depression, for example, right? And then there are many other little myriad ways in which things can change. So we do think, based on all the evidence that we have, that just changes or disturbances in the microbiome can promote changes in brain chemistry and therefore mental health. And we do think that if you can alter the microbiome to one that's not associated with depression, you can alleviate those, um, those brain chemical disturbances and therefore mental health disturbances. Okay, wow, that, that's very interesting. So is this becoming mainstream? Or are we just at the level of discovery now? And are we, should we be expecting to see treatments for, for depression and for obesity coming out of microbiome science soon? Yeah, we're trying. Um, so uh, most of the work is still in animals and in association studies in humans. Um, I, we did launch a company, um, called Hollow Biome, uh, approximately three years ago now, uh, four years ago that, um, is trying to, uh, commercialize bacteria that we've shown to be associated with a, an absence of major depressive disorder. And that when we introduce these bacteria into mice and rats, it can alleviate these conditions much the same way as we were talking about precision probiotics for treating things like C. diff infection or IBD maybe, we're trying to develop precision probiotics to treat depression, right? I do have a commercial interest in that company. Mm. But, you know, Holobiome's entire program is to try and identify these organisms and get them into a clinical trial, which should be starting um, early next year. We have are also involved in fecal microbiome transplants between healthy 
well, no, lack of mental health, lack of poor mental health people, uh, people without major depressive disorder mm-hmm. and people with depression disorder. And so we, we demonstrated in a very early phase clinical trial that it can alleviate certain symptoms of depression having an FMT in this way. So we're getting there. Yeah. We're definitely not mainstream. We definitely shouldn't be trying to use these things at this time to treat depression because we still have to prove it works. Sure, sure. We've got to prove that it's not, you know, um, it's it's not just a snake oil, right? <laughs> it's That's the really important piece about science. Yes. It takes time. We have to be careful because people's lives uh, expectations are on the line here, mm-hmm. but it's it's really interesting, yeah, right? In yeah. our rat studies, some of these bugs can be as effective for treating depression-like symptoms as ketamine. You know, ketamine has become a major new antidepressant that people are using all the time um, in clinical s- setting. And so, if you could, what would you prefer to take? An, a chemical antidepressant, or just rebalance your microbiome? This one seems a lot more. I don't know, less invasive, yeah, yeah. less, uh, less, side effects. less immediate. I, I would, yeah, less side effects. I would, I would prefer to create better equilibrium in the body, much the same way as we try and do with a, with a healthy diet, rather than just trying to mask symptoms with a, a chemical which suppresses signatures. Wow. Right? Yeah, I think for sure it's important to try and get back to health. Mm-hmm. And now you mentioned that you that some of these treatments are targeted um, probiotics, but you've also said that you can't eat food and get probiotics down there. How do you target the tro- probiotics to where they should go? Do you do you inject them directly or? What's what's? Oh no, you can you can you can uh, you can eat food. So um, you mentioned before that the uh, people are worried that the probiotics are killed by the stomach acid. That's not true. It just doesn't happen. The the bacteria don't survive very well inside the intestine, but they definitely go into the body and the immune system sees. Okay, them, right? They don't. Immune system doesn't kill them off. It just observes them, and that that very state of surveillance tends to promote a healthy immune system. But most of those probiotics just go in all the way through and are passed out uh, with your stool, okay. right? So it's it's less about trying to get a targeted um, probiotic into the right place. It's more about getting the right kind of bacteria which have the right kind of immune signatures on the outside that stimulate the immune system in precise ways. We think that those could be playing a role in treating the condition. Okay. You know, um, think about it this way. Uh uh, you know, if you had a surveillance system, um, and I'm not very good at analogies, but the immune system sees every single bacteria in a different way. And the way it sees the bacteria change how it responds and reacts. So a particular bacteria can stimulate the immune system to do particular things. Wow. Right. So if we add the right kind of bacteria in, in the right concentrations at the right time, we can st- we can train the immune system or push the immune system to do different things, such as suppress neuroinflammation. Just so happens, some of these bacteria also produce things like neurotransmitters inside the intestine, which we think could play a role in gut transit, in you know how how fast the gut moves, but also maybe in changing the signatures, uh, the nervous system impulses which go from your gut to your brain. We just find that very hard to prove, right? But uh, definitely stimulating the immune system in particular unique ways, we think, is a fundamental role for health. That, that's actually a little bit of news to me because, you know, as, as you mentioned, my picture of the immune system is soldiers, right? They're, their one thing is to kill. They, what, yeah. what other things does the, immune, does the immune system actually help certain bacteria or is it just ignore them and leave them alone and let them live? No, it actually coats the bacteria in um, in little markers. So it, it coats some of the bad bacteria in lots of markers and you know targets them for removal, much as a gardener would go in and say, "Those are weeds. I don't want them here. They're going to interrupt my, you know, my you know, potatoes and tomatoes, right? Um, or potatoes and tomatoes, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, you know that the gardener would identify those and try and get rid okay. of them. The other ones, it labels as you know puts a little marker in there and says this is my tomato plant i want to keep it alive right and it might even put a little net around it and make sure it doesn't get eaten by something else the immune system protects certain organisms and it can produce chemicals which help to stimulate their growth or change their function and make them release certain compounds 
this is all very, very new science, right? And a lot of it's still unpublished. But the we we tend to see the body and the immune system working in synergy, because they are the same thing, right? Yeah. Your immune system's just part of your body, producing chemicals into the gut which stimulate certain growth of certain organisms. Um, we see this, for example, with uh, with um, uh, bile acids. So your body pumps bile acids out of your bile duct into your gut in order to theoretically break down food. Mm-hmm. But many of those bile acids are food for different types of bacteria. And the bacteria that consume some of those bile acids promote, gr- produce compounds which promote health in your pancreas, in, uh, in your uh, liver, in your kidneys, in your gastrointestinal membranes all over the body. Wow. You know, we're seeing these, these distal effects outside of the gut when the body produces this nutrients, fertilizer, if you will, to get the bacteria to produce the right kinds of chemicals. The body is clever. It's figured out a way to harvest the, the metabolic products from all of these organisms that it's constantly exposed to and it can't get rid of, right? It's like, well, I've got to live with them. So if I've got to live with them, I'm going to figure out a way to take advantage of them and, and feed myself with their products. It's very clever. How, how does the immune system know which ones are good and which ones are bad? Is it looking at their products or is there some sort of evolved genetic programming that you know recognizes certain functional groups on these on these cells uh, both but it's definitely the latter right you know um the, the wonder of natural selection uh you you know your immune system has evolved over tens if not hundreds of millions of years and it's you know through trial and error it's figured out that um that uh if you will that, that certain molecular signatures are associated with death and therefore you don't produce any offspring and other ones are associated with life and therefore you do produce a lot of offspring and those ones propagate in the populations is evolution mm. so you're absolutely right it's it's derived evolution this is i mentioned before this is one of the reasons we think that our what our ancestors immune systems were exposed to and their Im- immune responses to the environment uh play a fundamental role in how our bodies and how we uh, uh, respond and react to the world, mm. to our diet, to pollen and animal dander outside, to, to you know, to uh, pollution in the atmosphere. We, we, we the, the whole idea of the hygiene hypothesis, right? You know, our bodies, we're used to seeing lots and lots and lots of, of immune stimulants in our environment, lots of bacteria, lots of viruses, lots of things, sure. right? And then suddenly there's nothing. You're cut off from all of that, living in a sterile world, your immune system's going to do strange things. It's, it's not used to that. It's not evolutionarily used to that. Your ancestors' immune systems are there and they gave birth to you because they had a particular type of immune response. Yeah, no, And you have to kind of live with that. <laughs> it's, it's actually a very interesting perspective. And I assume your, your book, Dirt is Good, probably discusses that in some detail. Um, but I remember, you know, you know, when you have children, you go to the hospital and they say, okay, well, you have to sterilize all of the, the bottles that you give your child. And, you know, you can't have any potential for infection here. So you, you, young parents are being taught at hospitals to stare, to bring up their kids in sterile environments. And I think what the science is showing is that's not necessarily the case. I don't know where the dividing line is, whether you should ignore. I don't, I would never say ignore what the doctors are telling you because obviously the doctors know what they're doing, but I was always confused by, you know, or maybe less, um, strongly, um, uh, sterilizing everything as, as I learned more about this. Right. I think, I think it's balance. So, you know, the reason we don't have massive quantities of infectious disease killing 50 to 60 million American children every year like we did in the late 19th century and early 20th century, partly due to, well, majority due to vaccines, right? Mm. Partly due to cleaning up our environment so we're not living um, and consuming our, our fecal waste, right? And therefore having a hive to spread disease. And so uh, c- uh, ensuring that we're not exposed to pathogens is definitely a good idea right you don't want your your child dying of a major pathogenic infection but then it's outside of that it's really tricky right where are those pathogens coming from majority of them come from interaction with other people or from 
you know, um, uh, spoiled food, right? So <laughs> you do have to be clear, right? You know, you can get compiler bacter on chicken. You can get, you know, uh, salmonella from eggs. You know, you got to you got to understand how to treat food carefully. Your ancestors knew that. You have to know that, right? That's that's a given way. Sure. You have to be mindful of the fact that other people can infect you. you know, SARS-CoV-2 hopefully drilled that into most people's heads quite clearly, right? Um, you know, a virus can be transmitted from you to me and I could get sick and die. Outside of that, you need to still maintain exposure. Your immune system needs to be trained. And so, you know, where, where are you not going to find a lot of disease or the high probability of disease? Well, out in the garden, right? Or out in the park or, you know, even down on the beach, messing around in the environment. Mm. Children that physically interact with a, a puppy or a dog, right, under the age, when the child is under the age of one, if they're allowed to continually physically interact with the dog, they have a, uh, a, a 16% reduction in the likelihood of developing asthma. That's pretty big, right? That's, that's quite a considerable impact, wow. just being able to physically interact with the dog. And so we think that microbial exposure and immune stimulation they get from physically interacting with that dog when they're a baby, right, plays a fundamental role in training their immune system and allowing their bodies to develop. If they grow up on a farm, it's a 50% reduction. Hmm. I mean, and that's huge. Growing up on a farm means that your probability of developing um, asthma is it's very, very much lower. Like only one to two percent of people that grow up on a farm develop asthma, whereas the U.S. average is about eight to nine percent, right? Hmm. But there's other aspects that uh, we, we're only just starting to understand. Uh, but yeah, you know, allow your child to physically interact with animals. Get it, get out there in the dirt. You know, teach them how to garden so their immune system can become better gardeners. That's that's very good advice. Um, and just. Just a little bit curious about uh, your your bio. Uh, you are working on something called Biome Sense. Could you could you give us a little bit of an idea of, of what that is and what it does? Yeah, I mean our our role in as microbiologists working in the clinical sector is to try and understand how the microbiome interacts with the body, right? And unfortunately, the only way to really do that when we're looking at the gut microbiome is to collect fecal matter, which isn't an ideal representation of what's going on inside the body, mm. but it's, it's a, it's a, you know, uh, uh, it's like, like a late breaking news report, right? It's just, it's just whatever the, the press picked up. It's not necessarily the absolute truth. However, it's the best thing we have and we produce it, most of us daily, sometimes twice daily. We want to capture all of those things. Uh, you know, when we look at the, the microbiome, it's incredibly complicated, right? If we think of something like, your uh, blood sugar level or your blood pressure or your heart rate. Those are very simple measurements. It's usually one number, one, one measurement. Um, and it, those tend to vary quite frequently. Things like your height and weight don't tend to vary very frequently. They change, but very slowly, right? Um, and they're, they're still simple numbers. Your genome is incredibly complicated, right? There's 28,000 genes in there and, and it, how it's managed and run is incredibly complicated, but it's pretty static. It doesn't change very much. Okay. So, you know, those are all measurements we use for health. Your microbiome is terrible, right? It's incredibly complicated, very diverse, but also dynamic. It changes over time, like your heart rate does. So we need to measure that. So we built a device that goes into your bathroom where you can take a piece of used toilet tissue um, after you've, you've wiped yourself, dump it in the machine, and it extracts all the genetic information from the microbes and gives us a signature that allows us to see how your microbiome changes day to day. Hmm. And so we're instigating, putting this device, we call it the gut lab, right? It's an entire molecular biology laboratory. It's basically my lab put into a box, which sits in your bathroom. <laughs> Take my lab, put it in your bathroom, wow. right? It's kind of weird. And what, what it allows us to do is we integrate this into clinical trials so that now whenever person going through a clinical trial where we're giving a drug intervention or a dietary intervention we know exactly how their microbiome has changed over time mm -hmm. and so now if i take all of that data this huge database that we're building out of the gut labs that we're putting into clinical trials i can now use that information using artificial intelligence to predict which of the change signatures reflects changes in the potential for a disease state or changes in how you might respond to a diet mm -hmm. 
So we're using this information to create better predictive algorithms so that we can use the microbiome as a biomarker of disease. Very cool. That's that's amazing stuff. And this has been uh, a really interesting discussion. And I've learned so much about how, how this is working and where it's going. Can you tell us uh, maybe what we should look for coming up? What's the, what's the next big thing we should expect out of, out of microbiome science? One thing we're really, really interested in is understanding how the microbiome interacts with our endocrine system, our hormones, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we're fundamentally, uh, one of our big new project areas is understanding both uh, the microbiome and how it influences menopause. Um, so uh, looking at ways of uh, decreasing the negative symptoms associated with menopause mm -hmm. and improving women's health um, as they age. But then also, interestingly, in trans people, so um, especially trans men, for example, where, where they're taking testosterone to suppress the biological female side to create a, um, a new uh, gender-based identity, they suffer uh, physiological symptoms that are very similar to menopause. So we're trying to understand how the microbiome, what role the microbiome plays in these symptoms mm. so that we can use that information to help treat these disorders that affect 51% of our population. Um, or 52% if you include uh, trans people. So we're, we're really interested in trying to figure out strategies to manipulate the microbiome to improve women's health overall. Hmm. Okay, that's very cool. So we'll keep an eye out for, for those results. And I'm really excited to hear about some of the treatments you're talking about coming to fruition and, and being available to the general public. I think this is uh, really promising work and looking forward to I think one of the things I'm most interested in and the thing that everybody should take away is is your mother was probably right, right? Eating a healthy diet is probably one of the most fundamental things you can do to maintain health. You know, everything in moderation, but eating a healthy diet really will be life-changing. As you age, um, it, it, you know, it will help potentially reduce cancer rates. It will help improve mental health. It will help uh, with immune disorders. Eating a healthy diet rich in fermented foods, eating the rainbow, eating more fiber can only be beneficial. And diversity in, in those in those species is, is very important too, which is something I've learned. So More than 30 different species of plant a week. Very good. So thank you very much for coming and, and chatting with us today. Uh, for spending your time, I'll, I'll send you a, a Rational View t-shirt so you can uh, remember your time with us. <laughs> thank you, Ralph. Appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.